I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmine Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, I speak with Eden Amadora, a speaker, coach, mentor, and spiritual guide. She is a featured author in The New Feminine Evolutionary Sacred Body Wisdom and Divine Reunion. She's an ordained 13-moon priestess, a divine feminine mystery school teacher, an archetypal channel, a mystic, and a muse. Eden serves the great awakening on earth by holding a clear, compassionate mirror for all, uplifting, inspiring, and supporting us to return to the center of our essence, to fully embrace ourselves as nothing less than unique and precious embodiments of the divine. And I am just so excited to welcome Eden to the show. I've had the pleasure of sitting down with her and having a session and was just so blown away by it. So welcome to the show, Eden. Thank you, Yasmin. Such an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So Eden, to kick it off, why is understanding the divine feminine so important? And perhaps you could even define what it means to be in the divine feminine versus just the feminine. Okay. Thank you for that question. I've been in a divine feminine mystery school first as an initiate and now as a teacher for 13 years. So I'm very, it's like the water ice women. And then I forget (laughs) that a lot of people are like, what is that? What does that really even mean? And so we've been culturally, especially in the West, we've been given very few powerful, spiritual, or divine feminine archetypes to look up to, to embody, to to pray to, besides Mother Mary, really, in Catholicism. There's just so few goddesses that we even relate to. We're not offered this invitation into their, their wisdom, their abilities, their magic. And at first, I thought, well, maybe this is just something in India or, you know, from the the East, the Far East, like even in China, there's Kuan Yin. And then I realized 
throughout history, many, many cultures were deeply seeped in the goddess traditions. And it's only really in the last couple thousand years that we've been robbed of the divine feminine. And what's happened is that we've been robbed from our connection to earth, to our own inner divinity as as a human, and to the, the realization of our interconnectedness with all beings, because that is the nature of the feminine. So we were we were kind of given this this sky god story where it's like a separate divine force that rules over us and that we can't even really know or meet until we are in the spirit realm. And the divine feminine, like most indigenous cultures, is inviting us back into our divinity here on earth, recognizing presence, beauty, wholeness, interconnectedness, and not separating. It's dispelling this illusion of separation so that we we live with more harmony, more peace, and come into more balance. So as I learn more about her with the capital R, I mean, capital H rather, I, I realized, wow, of course, it takes these two forces to create all life in the universe, all, all that exists. We cannot be so out of balance anymore. And, and it's just a natural path of awakening to invite her back into balance with what we might call more the divine masculine light of all that is. The divine feminine is all that emanates into form that takes shape. She's She's the emanation of creation where the divine masculine is more of a transcendent light of consciousness. So that's kind of how I would explain it. And then the why is deeply embedded in that, in the the need for this balancing. Mm, Wow. I have so many follow-up questions uh, from that. And um, yeah, and I think so much of the world is playing in a space of imbalance really, right? Like we're sort of prioritizing one way of being in the world, one way of rewarding success in the world. And so I want to talk about, you know, in the grand scheme of of our existence, it, you know, it seems like the divine feminine has been suppressed, like you said, for the last thousand years, but why has the feminine been suppressed? You know, do you have anything to share with us on that? That kind of makes me chuckle. I just, I... I feel into history and there's so much that's been distorted and changed and history is literally his story, right? When you look at the word, just the semantics of it, it's about the the winners of war that write the history and it's it's really the, you know, the Roman Empire that that conquered so many lands and shaped so much of culture in Europe and the East and all these goddess traditions, all these temples were toppled. And I would say there was this shifting. And this is a very large question because we could ask, why are there times of total darkness and violence and war? And if, if you look at the arc, we are we are awakening. We are coming into a time of less violence and war historically. That being said, it seems like we fell into a really dark age you know we've been in we've been in this rising up towards the next age and what i feel intuitively is in that dark age that light of truth and balance and the feminine got got burned at the stake basically it got suppressed because 
the feminine is that that force of motherly love, that divine mother love. And in the larger kind of arc of time, we are moving through cycles much, much greater than just, you know, our turns around our sun. We're moving around this galactic spiral too. And some say that there's been golden ages on this planet where People lived in harmony for thousands of years with technologies beyond anything we could ever imagine. We're not we're not really given these history books or told these stories. There was so much lost, cataclysmic changes, dark ages happened in this turning around the galactic spiral, and the the goddess was apparently squashed or suppressed in this dark age. So you can think back to like you know, the crusades and the the dark ages where there's like heads on spikes and it's so heavy and so much war. And there's really, there's no one to blame. I would, I've heard stories about like evil aliens or like, you know, these kind of crazy sci-fi imaginings. I, I really don't think it's that wildly like sci-fi. I feel like it's cycles of growth and awakening that we go through to grow and learn and evolve. And we're emerging from the darkness. And this particular time we're in is called the revelation time or the apocalypse, which means the unveiling. Historically, there's been lots of prophecies about this lifting of veils, which is a beautiful thing. It's like, what's been happening under the dark? What's been covered over? Oh, all this corruption, all this violence, all this needless war. The Divine Mother is saying, love each other and take care of the children and the earth. And that is coming into right relationship as stewards of this planet and coming back into peace and harmony together. So, I am a part of that, that championing mm-hmm. for that veil to be lifted in a big mm-hmm. way. Beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's powerful, Eden. And so how can we actually connect with that feminine side when, especially when I think so much of the working world rewards these more masculine characteristics? How do you encourage people or bring people into this space? And is it just for women? No, I'm I'm saying my work is not just for women. In fact, it is so, so important now that our men can not only really honor the feminine and recognize the beauty of her differences, her cycles, her sensitivities, that they honor the divine feminine that lives in them. This is not a genderified splitting, like, oh, you're in a male body, so you cannot actually access the divine feminine within. In fact, in Jungian psychology and in Native American spiritual traditions, it was believed that our soul is the opposite gender. So in Jungian terms, women have an animus, this divine masculine essence that resides in the center of their heart. That's like their guiding light. And men have the anima, the inner feminine. And to meet that part is to come into more wholeness and to honor that as we kind of embody more of our soul essence, our soul light, we're not needing to act out out such dramas with the opposite sex, with the opposite gender, because we come into so much more awareness, attunement, and balance within. We can really see others 
that are the opposite gender, the polarity with more honor, respect, and understanding. So my work is for both men and women. And it's a little different the way I work with men and women. For men, I do one-on-one spiritual initiations, a lot of deep healing, working with both the sacred masculine archetypes and healing with the mother, mother wound, and finding that deep reverence for the feminine so that they can improve their relationships with the women in their life. And with women, I take them through ceremonial initiations in the archetypes of the divine feminine through a 13-month-long cycle, working with 13 different faces of the divine feminine. And there's many, many goddesses within each of those archetypes or faces. I would say she of countless names and a myriad of faces. So it's a beautiful, rich, rich journey of embodiment. Rather than just intellectually studying about the goddesses, we do practices and rituals to feel her frequency, to open to the archetypal energy, and to experience inner alchemy. And inner alchemy is where old patterns and old small stuck stories about ourselves and love and life and men, all of that comes up to be loved into a higher octave. It's almost like that lead, you know, the alchemical lead that we've gotten fed, conditioned by the culture, by our our family of origin, all the programming, all the imprinting starts to get cooked in the most loving way up into a higher octave of consciousness and perception. It is an awakening experience as we're on the awakening show. This is this is really a path of of heart opening and stepping into more presence and unconditional love and compassion for ourselves and all others. And I, I don't know if I answered both of your questions. <laughs> I'm trying to remember there was yes. a two-part. Yes, you did. Yeah, you answered both of them. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the work that you do uh, with the feminine and also uh, just to explore and define some of the terms that you use, like the mother wound. What do you mean by that? Mm. Well, we all have certain wounds, both both from mother and father, even if we've had the most wholesome childhoods and loving parents, there are things that, that happen when we're such a sensitive soul, so, so new into this physical reality, where we learn about how to stay safe and how to, how to keep love or, or find a way to navigate without suffering. And as a young person, we are tracking energy and watching patterns and learning how to be safe and loved, basically. So a lot of times, even in their greatest intentions, for those of us who've had pretty peaceful, loving family experiences, we still we still have triggers and imprints and woundings that occur. And some of it, it's like, bless them. They know not what they did. They tried their best. And a lot of it is ancestral. It goes through a lineage of their mother's mother's mother, mother. It goes back, back, back into these belief systems. Our ancestors had to survive. Life was a lot harder. So even if your mother was very loving, there might've been a way she just would 
look at you with so much fear in her eyes because of what happened to her when she was a little girl that would would zap your nervous system. There could be things like that that were so subtle and that being said, still imprinted you into beliefs and stories about yourself and the world. And so the mother wound lives in the subconscious. And for some of us, it's very obvious. There's been abuse. There's been neglect. There's been things like enmeshment or merging where you're not narcissistic mothers that you, you don't, they don't know where they stop and you start. There's so many ways that we're affected by those energetics so early in life that healing the mother wound and finding this deeper holding of the divine mother's love that is here for everyone and to actually embody that from within and to feel the parts of us that never got that safety, that, that, that nourishment, that secure embrace can repair. They can actually heal. It's not too late. And the thing about archetypal work compared to therapeutic psychological work is that it's very fast and powerful, relatively speaking. There was a, a Jungian therapist named Marion Woodman who said that on a frequency level, if you compare working with talk therapy and the mental body as a frequency, like a sound, as compared to working with archetypes and ritual, it's like comparing the quack of a duck to a thunderclap. That's why there's quantum leaps of change possible in this work. I've seen it. It's amazing. It just bursts my heart open. I, I often cry from the beauty that I witness in this work. Wow. So actually double clicking on that point, I'd love to drop into the archetypes. And I think you mentioned that there were 13 feminine archetypes and why they're so important to understanding how to embody this divine feminine. And yeah, I'm I'm intrigued. I, I, I know a little bit about the different um, archetypes through, I think it was, the book was called Goddesses in Every Woman. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm super curious to hear your perspective. And I think those were only applicable to, I want to say like the Greek archetypes, right. uh, but yeah, please tell us. <laughs> so in the 13 moon mystery school, which I need to completely honor and bow to my mentor and I call her my fairy goddess mother, Ariel Spilsbury. She is the, the channel, the scribe, the, the deep listener that really brought this lineage forth in her twenties and she's in her seventies, late seventies now. And these 13 archetypes work together holographically, meaning they're, they're kind of nonlinear. That being said, there's an order to the, the rituals we do because they build upon each other. And each one is a vast magnetic field of powerful energy and has many different historical goddesses from around the world that are included in their energetic field. So for instance, I'll take the archetype of the goddess of compassion and we may connect to her and know her even as mother Mary or in the East as Kuan Yin in China and Tara in India, this frequency and the, the male aspect of that, some, they're always honoring a male um, God or several of them as well to see that these archetypal energies are not 
totally genderified. So Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of compassion, is honored in that ritual as well. So there are 13 of these archetypes, like the goddess of love. It's a it's a big energy that goes all the way back to Sumeria with the goddess Inanna, that it was connected to the planet Venus, and then to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the Roman Venus, the Indian Lakshmi and Lalita. There's so many faces, so many different names across time, cross-culturally for these archetypes. And what we find is when we work at that level, not with one specific goddess, but with the vaster archetypal holding of that frequency, we can honor so many traditions and cultures that we might resonate with more than others and have a direct embodied experience of how that archetype moves through us as her hands, her voice, her presence, her eyes in the world? How do we embody the archetype of the goddess of compassion when a friend is hurting and suffering and in need, learning the difference between sympathy, pity, and true high-frequency loving compassion that lifts others into a higher frequency with us? So by embodying these goddesses, and really also watching how the energy will cook cook up our own shadows. For instance, as we sit in the ritual of the goddess of compassion and move through the month of really embodying her and learning about her, our shadows of codependency, of over-caretaking, the ways that it's not true compassion will come to the, surf the surface to be integrated, to be brought back into true compassion. So it's a very powerful way of kind of cleaning it up and coming into more sovereignty, more empowered alignment, more of our heart-centered presence in our lives and in our relationships. Mm, wow. Beautiful. And so uh, you spoke about a couple goddesses that I had not heard about before. I was wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit more about one or two that may have been instrumental for you or perhaps the ones that you see come up time and time again that many women or the majority of women in your circle kind of gravitate to. And just curious, and I'm I'm curious like what the characteristics are of some of these archetypes. So I'm glad you're asking. In the beginning, 13 years ago, there were a couple of these archetypes, the goddess that I was like, do we have to do that one? I really don't. I'm a little afraid of that. I don't want, I don't want that. <laughs> my ego, my personality was like, why, why are we communing with this kind of more, the darker faces of the goddess, like the creator, destroyer, preserver. She's most known in the East and in India as Kali Ma. And my phase of development 13 years ago, I was a little intimidated by this. She's, she looks more kind of like blue with a long tongue and a scary face. And she was created because her powers of destruction were needed at that time. There was this awareness that until we are willing to destroy what no longer serves, to burn it down and to let the ashes nourish the soil for the new life and what is really to be created next and to find the diamonds and the ash of what is eternal and will always be preserved, that is important. And 
I was, I didn't have a relationship with her. I, I was like, oh, I love the goddess of love. Ah, you know, and the goddess of compassion feels so, so gentle. But this creator, destroyer, preserver came into my life. And now I've learned to love her and respect her and recognize that that aspect of knowing when enough is enough and the, the tapping into sacred rage as a vertical kind of clarifying fire of, of truth, like as women, we're often terrified by anger. We're terrified by that toxic masculine anger that is aggression and violence because we've seen it wreak havoc with the world and our lives. And a lot of us from our childhoods with very scary, angry fathers. So when we get to the Kali initiation, the creator, destroyer, preserver, sometimes there's women that have a hard time staying in their body when the field is allowing for finally speaking that truth that's like, enough of this, or I'm angry that. And it is about liberation. It is so liberating. And what I realized is that when we're putting a lid on it and trying to look pretty nice and sweet in the feminine and not honoring that fiery, catalytic, liberating face of what we'd call more the dark goddess, we are living in a pretense a lot of times by not allowing the truth and the energy of our shakti, our aliveness, to move authentically. We're trying to keep it together and put on a show to, to just function in the system. So these, these goddess temples allow us to finally just let it go and let it out and feel these faces of her with a capital R again that we're not that familiar with, that we might be afraid of, that then we recognize, oh my God, she is my ally and my beloved. And I remember walking into a little... Indian um, store that had many different goddess statues and I had yet not yet owned a Kali statuette. And for the ritual, I needed to have her in the, in the space to honor her. And I asked the Indian woman, I said, if I would ask you to describe Kali to you, how would you speak of her? And she said, Kali, Kali Ma is the mother of compassion. And I, I was just so taken by that. So another one of these goddesses that I wasn't familiar with, that I was intimidated uh, with even the name of was called, is called the Queen of Death. And the Queen of Death is now one of my favorite frequencies to go into because it is the deep honoring of the cycles of rest and the awareness that we need to go inward into the dark, into the stillness, into the fallow field that remineralizes the soil and the seeds for, for growth anew in the spring, the winter. And in our culture, we're, we're just pushed to go, go, go in the patriarchy and produce and do, do, do. And especially women in corporate America are finding it breaks down their bodies. They're getting adrenal fatigue, burnout. There's so much loss of our essence, our intuition, our sensuality, our remembrance of our magic when we're not honoring the dark rest cycles. We fear the dark in the West. We've demonized the dark and made it evil. The dark is the yin and the yin and the yang. It is the feminine. It's saying, come back inward, come into the womb of nurturance and rest 
and trust, trust the dark is holding you in love. And for me, that was an edge many, many years ago. And now it is such a part of my journey to trust the unknown, to trust the darkness, to trust the mystery. And that's where the magic happens. That's where so much of the intuition comes from, the quiet, the silence, the stillness, the dark. So the queen of death is asking us to release, release the grip of the ego mind, the need to know all the time and do all the time and to trust. Mm. I trust, I release. That's so beautiful and something I think we all need to hear more and more these days because of the this multi-year pandemic, I think, has sent a lot of people into a frenzy of not knowing um, you know, where to put their attention, where to put their energy. So much is being uprooted. So the idea of trust is so important. And wow, so I, I have so many more questions about the archetypes. And I, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about Aphrodite. I think she comes up a lot in Western culture, or I guess in culture, <laughs> she comes yes. up a lot. Um, and then Artemis, I think, has been coming up quite a bit on my radar. So I'm curious if we could talk about those two and... Yeah, and I have uh, so many more questions, so I will I'll hold off. <laughs> okay. So Aphrodite is in the archetypal field of the goddess of love, as we know, and we love her. We love Aphrodite, Venus, Lakshmi. These, these goddesses are all about abundance, beauty, sensuality, pleasure, and love, and how to open up the channel to be an emissary of divine love through our senses and embodiment. So in the feminine, we learn how to awaken through the senses, not in spite of them. And to be, like I was saying before, the hands, the eyes, the voice of the goddess and the goddess of love archetype, as we embody Aphrodite or the goddess of love, we really are looking at this way that We're bringing these higher frequencies of love, the unshielded heart, the open heart in our voice, in our words, in our, in our ability to look at another being through the eyes of the heart and see them as beloved, see them as beautiful to bring that softness. And that's, that's one of the balms this world needs, B-A-L-M-S. We need this (laughs) healing balm and the goddess of love and Aphrodite has many has many uh, myths about how she kind of wrecks havoc also because of her beauty. And in the archetypal initiation and ceremony with the goddess of love, we talk about the shadow of the goddess of love, which is competition, comparison, sexual manipulation, and the shadow of scarcity. Those shadows live in us collectively as women. And that is a big sister wound and feminine shadow that in this deep goddess work we attend to and we bring into the light to heal. And my life changed so radically when I felt the unconditionally loving embrace of sisterhood in my first circle and actually got, oh, these women are sincere. They really are not competing with me. They love me and want me to shine. And my beauty is not threatening to them because we're looking through a lens of the heart where we're recognizing all the unique beauty that we are. Every face of the goddess is like a jewel in her diadem, a flower in her garden. So in the initiation of the goddess of love and the the embodiment of these these goddesses like Aphrodite and Venus, 
we are recognizing each other in our unique beauty and celebrating that. Mm -hmm. And we're really asking, what is still shielding your heart, beloved? Where are you still trapped in competition and comparison? How is that breeding scarcity consciousness, which is an illusion, when there is limitless love? We are, we are love. We swim in the field of divine love. So as embodiments of the goddess of love, we can be a part of that lifting of the veil and the revealing of that truth. Mm, beautiful. And then you also asked about Artemis. Artemis belongs to the archetype of the lady of communion. And this is a very empowering archetype. This is the archetype where we come into balance between our masculine and feminine essence, and we honor this solar light of this, this masculine sun god that is so shining down and in and through our own hearts, and we honor the earth, the green of Gaia and the fecundity, and we step into the vow of being stewards of Gaia. And we step into our vow of being sovereign beings. And I used to hear that word sovereign or sovereignty and be a little confused and think, well, isn't that like owning land or being a ruler of land, like a king or a queen? And really what we're inviting in this mystery school is stepping into spiritual sovereignty and really moving from the truth of your own heart knowing moment to moment, which sounds wonderful. And oh yeah, of course, that being said, we're so conditioned to not want to be different, to be cast out, to lose love. We are entrained to look for validation, approval, and appreciation for what we do and say instead of being in our authentic sovereignty. So Artemis is a goddess that was stronger and faster and totally sovereign and independent of the need of any male god. She was the huntress. And in myths about Artemis, she's like running with the deer and just free and taking care of nature. And as we embody more of her, the Lady of Communion, and this goddess Artemis and her attributes, we feel a confidence that is really truly the meaning of that word, the ability to confide in ourselves, self-trusting, trusting our own heart knowing and moving accordingly. And as we step more and more into that confidence, we become so empowered in our relationships, telling the truth with love, not collapsing into the shadow feminine, which is more of the damsel in distress archetype, and not wearing the toxic masculine pantsuit <laughs> that the feminist movement unfortunately swung the pendulum into the competition with the men. It's really about standing in balance and empowering others as we empower ourselves. Mm, wow. Powerful, powerful, amazing. I... um yeah, I, I somehow identify with those archetypes. Um, so I've just been very curious about it. Uh, so Eden, how have people in your circle and in, in your space, how have they changed after doing this work? Like maybe you could tell us an anecdote or two of how you've seen certain women blossom. And obviously, you know, you don't have to include any names or anything, but right. yeah. <laughs> I see, I see the most amazing changes. And it, like I was saying before, it doesn't 
happen over years and years and years. It happens quite, quite rapidly in this work. So there's a couple patterns that I've noticed from doing this for 13 years now. And one of them is that when women are out of balance in their masculine, meaning they've been in that adrenalized competitive corporate world and trying to do it better than the men, playing the boys game, often they come in because they know that they're losing their feminine essence. They're losing their sensuality, their feeling of softness, their relationships are suffering with men and they don't feel as in touch with their intuition. And what I've noticed is these women not only soften the shields of their heart and learn how to surrender and be in their feminine and release the grip of control that is so exhausting, I notice it changes their physical bodies. I see changes in people's faces, softening, opening up. This light comes through. This this beauty comes through. Their bodies drop weight, armoring, and the structure changes. The way they move, the way they just appear is somehow more feminine, more beautiful, more soft. So it takes these layers of armor off many women to do this work. And then I see it in the way they speak and the way they, they can be more receptive and open to others and it improves their relationships. There's more of a trusting and a surrender that, that starts to occur in their lives. So it's, it's phenomenal. It's beautiful and amazing to watch how that has helped women who have had either really unhealthy relationships with men or had a hard time even finding a relationship come into beautiful relationships. Um, I've seen it so many times. I can't, I can't even tell you the number of times I had an initiate come in who was almost suicidal. She was very in her masculine. She went so far into her masculine after being a Harvard business school graduate. She became a trained martial artist. She was actually fighting even at the level of getting knocked unconscious and getting a concussion. And so this kind, this kind of like armored feminine, that's like, I can do it even better than the masculine. And she was having the hardest time staying in a relationship more than a few dates. It was just not opening up for her. She was not finding the match or the resonance with a man because she was busy being the man. And she is now in a long-term, healthy, happy, incredibly supportive relationship with a man. And she is, it's funny because when she came in, she's like pink, I'm never going to wear pink because we, we wear the colors of these archetypal temples when we come into ritual. And now she is incorporating lavender and pink and fuchsia into her wardrobe. And she's laughing about it. She's also loving this work so much that she has volunteered to, to be an apprentice with me. It's just beautiful. So that's one, one way I've really seen and, you know, of course, her sense of self-love, the idea of not wanting to be here or be in a body anymore is the furthest thing from, from her mm. awareness. I've also seen another pattern that's kind of the, the pendulum on the other side with women who don't really 
know their purpose and they're, they're kind of more in their swirling feminine that they're, they're a bit ungrounded. They're lost. They, they can't find their voices. They're seeking to, to trust their voice, to trust their enoughness. And I have seen these women that are kind of more in their uber feminine embody more of their empowered queen archetype, that archetype of more of that lady of communion that we talked about, or this other archetype called the initiator that's willing to really tell the truth with love and to open up their vocal channel and to start creating and and really speaking into what they want and what they need. And they're, they're coming in maybe, you know, more dependent on a man or needing to be taken care of. And then they're creating businesses and they're creating fashion lines and they're making things and their arts coming out and they're stepping into their joy and their power in their own dharma, their own purpose, their own expression in the world. And this is fabulous to witness. So there's, there's a full spectrum and I've seen people birth things from these circles. It is a powerful womb-festing circle, we'll call it, <laughs> because I've had a woman that came in her first circle. She's coming through again this this cycle as an apprentice. It's her third circle, and she said in the first circle, "I I see a school for children that." I am going to create, I'm going to create a beautiful preschool based in these Waldorf principles called the hummingbird school. And she did it. She birthed it through the circle. She was able to attract those beings and find the property. And now her, her school has become so successful. She's moving to a large piece of land. And instead of just being preschool, it's going to go all the way through the elementary years. And it's bigger than she ever imagined with the support of the sisterhood and the the weaving and dreaming within this container to make things possible. Wow. My gosh. Amazing. So powerful. So, um, Eden, can we talk a little bit about your journey? I'm so intrigued and interested to learn a little bit about how you came to this work and why you decided to dedicate 13 years of your life to this work and to also offering it to others. I never imagined that I would be a priestess, an ordained priestess and a mystery school teacher. It's really funny to think back on my trajectory because I was really on a different traje trajectory having been scouted at 15 to become a model and at 17 left America and did international fashion modeling. Granted, I had a very beautiful opportunity as a young person before leaving home with my mother studying comparative religion and introducing me to yoga and many books on Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, mystic Christianity. So I was already open and resonating with spirituality. That being said, I was also very attracted to the glamour world and I got swept up into that. I ended up marrying an Italian playboy and staying in Milan for seven years. And while I was there, I ended up 
um, I've always been musical as a younger person, as a child, and always interested in writing poetry and lyrics. And these passions came together in Italy. I ended up getting a record deal. And that brought me back to America around my Saturn return at 28 years old, where these two parts of my life, this very kind of deep seeking, mystical book reading, um, you know, very disciplined yogini life. I, I had this one side of me that was meditating, chanting, doing yoga, reading the books. And then this other side that was like rock and roll and high fashion modeling and jet setting. And it was, it was too big of a split. And at my Saturn return, I had now what I understand to be a spiritual crisis or emergence known as a Kundalini awakening. And I found myself right, right before I was about to go in after signing the record deal, I found myself in this state of being that was it was like what people now say they experience when they go to drink ayahuasca, some plant medicine, or being dosed with a lot of acid <laughs> with, with no substance. It was my own inner biochemistry and this kundalini energy that just rushed through my body. And I joke about it at times, like the goddess Kali, who we just spoke about earlier, who I was very intimidated by. It was like she came in to give me a good whack, like this is not working, this big split between your egoic glamour life and your, your deep spiritual longing. You need to get an alignment. And I was whacked so hard, I didn't sleep, eat, or even drink water for four days. And it's interesting because in some shamanic traditions, they do this four days on the land fasting and praying and active dreaming. And it's held by a shaman. It's held by a teacher. In my experience, there was no guru. There was no shaman. It was in the middle of a big city when it all came down. And it was very scary to my family to witness me because in that state, I didn't want material possessions. I didn't care for my record deal. It was four days of not speaking the common conversation at all. I was only able to speak ruthless truth without concern for anyone's feelings. And <laughs> I was absolutely detached from materialism. So in that state of mind, I wanted to sit naked under a tree and it was pouring rain in winter and they wouldn't let me do that. They wanted to keep me safe and out of harm's way. And I ended up being hospitalized and sedated after four days of this. And I imagine that in another culture, they would have put, you know, a robe around me and fed me ghee and honey and flowers around my neck or something because I was, I was seeing, I was beyond the veil and mysticism and psychosis in the West are very, very closely entwined and very misunderstood. So when someone's having a mystical experience and a spiritual emergence, we think, my God, they've gone crazy. We need to hospitalize them and lock them up. And in the East, that's not the case. And in shamanic traditions, that's not the case. The seers, the mystics, the shamans, the way showers are known to go into these states. And the culture has more of a holding for that. So for me, after that experience, my life changed radically. I did not have the same desire to like shake my butt on MTV and be this like rock star or whatever. I still, I went through with the recording of the album. There was just a very different 
consciousness that was moving through me. The song started changing. The record label I'd been signed to ended up going under, which in a way was a blessing because that first album was kind of this angry, tortured, angstful, belting breakup album about my marriage. And I wouldn't have wanted to go on tour belting these blamey songs for years. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all a blessing. And the music that came through me afterward, it's really interesting, actually. I'm remembering that before I left Italy to record my album, I was, even though I was very split, I was going to a yoga school that was connected to a guru named Maharishi Satyananda. And he had been raised in Italy by the little mother that was in my beloved book my mother gave me at 16, Autobiography of a Yogi. Mm. And so that connection was so sweet and deep. And when I saw him at the end of my marriage, I met him and he he introduced me and initiated me into Kriya Yoga. He looked at me and he said, well, what is it, my child? And I said, I failed my marriage. He's, he did this gesture like brushing dust off his sleeve. And he said, no failure. What now? And I, I said, oh, I want to sing like an angel. He goes, first, you'll sing like an angry woman. Then you'll sing for yoga. Then you'll <laughs> sing like an angel. And it's, it's wild looking back because that's exactly the trajectory. I had the angry breakup rock album record deal. And then when the label went under, I started to create music for yoga and very introspective. I, I played at a lot of yoga benefits for things and even during friends yoga classes. And then I entered into this phase where I made music that I called prayer formance music, where the lyrics were so much less about me and so much more about awakening and us and we. <laughs> so that's the sing like an angel part. And now I sing in these circles and I still enjoy making and recording music. So Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, I've heard your voice and it's so lovely. You're a multi-talented woman. Um, and I can't believe you met, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. It's one of my favorite books. So Oh, I didn't meet Yogananda. I met a guru that had been trained in India by Ananda Maima, the little mother that's featured in Yogananda's book. Oh, got it. Yeah, okay. That Yogananda, makes a lot more sense. Yeah, Yogananda <laughs> passed away so long ago, but I was so touched by his book and just always kind of feeling him and Babaji in my, like, you know, the ascended master field of beings. So. Wow. Amazing. So, Eden, what has surprised you the most on this path? What surprises me the most is the miracle of love and the opening of my own heart, the awakening of my own heart and how the quality of my life has changed so much into a life of love and service and the beauty of that, the gift of that, the joy of that as compared to it being all the drama that I once experienced. There's a simplicity and a beauty and to be in the magic and mystery of this work and to see and witness mostly other women, of course, some of the men that I've, I've worked with, but so many women to see them change so radically in such a beautiful way. I am constantly in awe. I cry now. My, I remember my, my little sister used to say, you're so stoic. You never cry. When I was younger, I was such a Valkyrie. And now I just, I cry from joy. I cry from gratitude. I sit in these 
circles and in these even online international Zoom circles, Zoom temples, and tears roll down my face from the shares and the medicine the women share and the beauty of the recognition that we are not alone, that we are awakening together and that we are we are lifting the frequency on this planet. It is happening. And mm. I mean, if our listeners just tune into that and feel feel in their hearts the truth of that and the resonance of that, especially during this pandemic, especially during this time of so much unknown and challenge, we're being asked to awaken and to create the world anew together in such a radical way. And what surprises me every day that I get to do this work is that it's really, really happening, not in some big political way, but through us, through our choices, through our hearts, through each moment where we ask, what would love do? What would love say? And as we embody that, and as we share that frequency, it's like the four minute mile, right? We never knew it was possible until it was witnessed and embodied and then it ripples through the morphogenetic field and it's happening. Mm. It's happening. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful, Eden. It was so lovely to have you on this podcast. Are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your circles and how to work with you? Absolutely. You can find me on EdenAmadora.com. I would love you to visit my page and see all of the offerings that I have right now. I've um, expanded during the pandemic. The, the challenge of not being able to meet in person for that first year actually birthed so much opportunity and creativity for me to still do this work and spread this work in wonderful ways. There's a really fun quiz on my homepage too that I encourage you to take because you'll You'll start to already get a taste for these archetypes that you embody, where you are already strong and where you can come into balance. And it's about your love style and the, how the beloved within moves through you. We talked about the anima and the animus. So the inner beloved and how that will reflect where you are in your balance of your masculine and feminine essence. So take my beloved archetype quiz. What beloved are you? And you can look under offerings. There are many beautiful ways to enter the mystery for those who are like, oh, I'm not ready for a whole year of initiation with the goddesses, but I want to learn about them. Enter into the temple is wonderful way. And then there's feminine alchemy empowerment where you're given tools with me on video to start practicing. And then for those who are really resonating, the goddess embodiment journey is 13 wonderful self-guided journeys on video for you to learn how to embody these different faces that we spoke of many of them on this call. And that that is all self-study of your own timing. If you are resonating and want to be put on a waiting list for the next in-person or online 13 moon mystery school initiation with me, don't hesitate to apply. Don't hesitate to reach out because if you're resonating, trust your heart. That is, that is absolutely the guide. Hmm, beautiful. Eden, thank you so much for your time. This was so lovely. I learned a lot and I'm very intrigued. So thank you so much. <gasps> Yay. I would love to stay connected, Yasmin, and I'm here as your ally. 
Yes. Any, any more goddess initiation sessions you would like? Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about the divine feminine with Eden Amadora. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one on one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well being, and spirituality. Thanks again.